I have a bone to pick with you, baby. I have a dream. This nation will rise up. Live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Now more than ever, we're short of workers. Uh, we have a population that is not reproducing it on its own with the same level that it used to. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Lyons. James Lilacs, today we talked to Charles McAleer about Pennsylvania. What happened? And Rich Goldberg about crypto. What happened? So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! <laughs> Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 619. I'm James Lilacs in Minneapolis, joined by Peter Robinson and Rob Long in their respective locations. And gentlemen, I went to bed last night with a heavy heart, knowing that Twitter was over. They were telling us that the technical teams were gone, the, the servers were in danger, the cards had been deactivated, and Twitter would be no more. And then I woke up today, and there was Twitter, as ever. I've noticed absolutely no change whatsoever since Elon Musk took over, which is great, because where else would you keep up with the uh, crazy things that are happening in the world, including, of course, our favorite thing, crypto meltdowns. Peter, Rob, welcome. Thank you, James. I was like you last night. I said a lot of sappy farewells to people on Twitter. <laughs> Got up did. this morning and realized I don't really even like them that much, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I yes. take it all back if you're listening. Okay, good. Uh, and Rob, too, is ensconced on Twitter as, as ever, uh, tweeting a mile a minute. Uh, no. But what we're going to do is get right to what I mentioned crypto. You're probably wondering exactly what that means and how it relates to the show. Well, I uh, am a seasoned crypto investor. I put uh, $5 into Ethereum, and I think it's worth a penny at the moment. I regarded that as a good learning experience. Uh, we've got some guy who knows a lot more about it, Rich Goldberg, senior advisor, the founder for Defensive Democracies, and the host of the podcast Kryptonite with Rich Goldberg. And I wonder where you can find that. Oh, right. Ricochet. Uh, at that podcast, Kryptonite, he guides listeners through the confusing world of blockchains and digital currencies. And Rich, welcome. We're obviously going to talk about, you know, that guy and that thing. How are you doing? I'm great. It, it's great to be back. I think the last time I was on was when we were kicking off and everybody was sky high. FTX was running Super Bowl ads. Everybody was into it. And, you know, we started having a lot of guests on who were painting a little bit of a different picture saying, if this might all be a Ponzi scheme, you might want to all be careful. And we really got into it. And as sure as it is, first the uh, crypto winter set in and now FTX. So I'm doing just fine because like you, uh, I, I'm a little bit more. I'm, I'm tenfold over you in, in the crypto market at $50, uh, so which means my losses are... are or tenfold as well, but yeah. So we saw crypto, the crypto winter when everything started heading south. For some strange reason, these uh, incorporeal bits of imagined assets with no exchangeable value in the real world started to depreciate. Was that one of the things that led to what happened to FTX, uh, or was the FTX thing just simply a Ponzi scheme collapsing of its own accord? And maybe back up and give people who have no idea what we're talking about a brief praises of what happened. Yeah, no, I, I think the uh, question is a good one. I think it's a little bit of it helped precipitate it. And also, we don't know yet because we don't actually know the financials quite extensively because most of it's hidden. Uh, and as we've now learned in a few days, uh, last few days, FTX doesn't really have uh, accounting uh, as you would expect from a publicly traded company. What um, what we've seen is obviously uh, a lot of the frenzy, the hype over crypto drove up prices incredibly, and it was euphoria. Anything that was called crypto, anything that was called decentralized finance or DeFi just attracted billions and billions of venture capital dollars because it was an ecosystem. It's hot. It's, it's happening. It's going up. Everybody's getting, you're having Super Bowl ads. I mean, they're, they're naming stadiums, celebrities are endorsing new coins every day. CNBC has a new celebrity on to tell us about their new coin and what they're doing. I mean, it was totally crazy. And by the way, everyone in Washington, everyone who is on the dime, the payroll of the crypto industry, all the business networks who started featuring VCs, all complicit, by the way, and now trying to be like, whoa, this is terrible. We saw this thing coming a mile away. Hey. 
Rich, I have a couple of basic questions. Yeah. So big professional operations or operations that we think of as professional here in Silicon Valley put money, a lot of money into FTX. A lot of money. So I have two questions. What was it that this young man, Sam Bankman Freed, who is still only 30 years old and who appears already in his young life to have made and lost at least $16 billion personally, what was it that he did or had or figured out that enabled him to become one of the leading figures while still a child in this new industry? That's question number one. And question number two, as I recall, Sequoia is one of the VC firms that put money into FTX. I know some Sequoia partners. These guys weren't born yesterday. They must have had some idea of how they were going to make money. This is the least sentimental investing group I know out here. What did Sam Bankman-Fried have? And what did people think? How did people think they were going to make money on this thing? What did he have? Well, he was young. He had a lot of money already because he was early in Bitcoin. He had a model. What you mean? You mean he made money from personal investments? Well, he, yeah, he he is already this young generation of bros, you know, random nerds or whatever who are, are getting rich as, as as Bitcoin starts gaining value. But he's also an early mover in understanding how to trade different cryptocurrencies, how to become an exchange for cryptocurrencies. And there's only a handful of those in the world uh, uh, that are processing the bulk uh, of exchanges of, of coins and tokens. And so if you can dominate the exchange market and start having everybody want to be with your exchange, you start having all the wallets coming to you, all the, all the different coins processing through you, that's a ton of money that you're generating as well. Um, just like any other type exchange that you would think of, right? Or how does CBOE or, or others like make money, right? I mean, it, they're 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 taking money from those that are using the platform. As so he through. just got so, there first. He was lucky. He was a first mover. It was pure first mover advantage. I that's my view. Is a lot of it's first first mover advantage, and then okay. he has the story of like idealism and and altruism, and all this money is going to go to charity, and I, and we're building a better world. And right. if you're, yeah, that and, was my question. How much of this was his ethical utilitarian uh, philosophy that uh, seems to be sweeping the left? With well, how much of that well, was a draw. I, I think that could absolutely be a big part of it. But I think also if if you're into speculation and hedging and taking big bets and, and things like that, and the trajectory of crypto is is pointing upward, and you're not counting on uh, you know massive inflationary hit to the economy that would start drawing down everything, including crypto, because don't forget crypto. We were told was supposed to be this hedge against inflation. Right, put your money into <laughs> right. crypto. Well, yeah, that right, yeah, that was, goes down. You believe and, that, you know? But go ahead. Sorry. And, and, right, and, and and as the market's collapsing, uh, starting to see the fundamentals of some of these other kinds of coins and these stable right. coins and things that are literally just like manipulated with code and and algorithms that are built on nothing so that if there is an economic slowdown or, or, or recession, you're just gone. Right, as but we it, start. But I think these yeah. people either these are smart people. You're right in the VC firms. They either were presented with false accounting uh, and and information. Which, by the way, this is going to be a key question of federal investigators. Now is what did they show the sequoias but of the world? What model did they have in mind? They thought they were buying part of a company that, that was the equity stake that they wanted. Or what, what you're sitting at the you're sitting at the top to... of the crypto pyramid when you're at the exchange. You're 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 being able to literally look around the entire decentralized finance ecosystem and start buying up pieces of it and, and start being the empire, the emperor of, of crypto. I mean, that, that's basically what, what this is. You're the mothership here. And you saw what's, what Bankman Free was trying to do was, again, buying up different parts of the decentralized finance world so that everything ultimately runs through something that FTX touches and makes money for FTX. How does it make the money, though? Does it make the money off the gas, which is, from what I understand, is what they charge to transfer a crypto from one to another or to make a purchase? Is that how they make their, how do they make their money? 
you're making money through every processing uh, of the transactions of uh, having the amount of money that's being put into those accounts being made available. Like, like it's a bank. an exchange, like any exchange makes money, it takes a little, little tiny little crumb off the top of every transaction. Takes right? the it's gas, like the, right. New York t- stock exchange, the commodities exchange is the same yeah, thing. I mean, the exchange this, finance it, is the same. It's, it's not crazy to me that the concept of an exchange is going to make you money. And that if you can really continue no, to build business. up the value and start buying different pieces of the industry that are also money makers, that you'll continue to make even more money. Right. And I guess the problem here is, or the benefit here for him is, or for the, for the, that business is that it's kind of complicated. So not everybody is going to get into it. And the people who do get into it tend to outsource the thinking to the smart guy who's, I, I'll relax. I'm doing the thinking for you. And there isn't a robust marketplace like there is in the New York Stock Exchange or even in the, you know, the bond market where you're seeing a lot of intelligent people, a lot of intelligent analysts working together to come to the one thing that a market does, which is price discovery, right? I mean, it, it, I guess what I'm trying to get to, get at is what, act, it, to me, it doesn't seem that different from any other financial scandal. He um, mm. cheated his investors, he front traded on them and then, and then dumped stuff on them. And then when he made speculations that turned south, he bought, he took their money to pay his bills. That, Correct. Like, that is... No, in, in many ways, Bernie it's a classic Madoff, fraud. Right? This is a classic Ponzi yeah. scheme fraud, yes. Uh, how, however, the question I think is really, really good. I come back to Peter's question is, did VCs and just broader business sector, you know, mainstream go all in on this FTX? And by the way, we're, we're having a couple of great episodes on Kryptonite that are going to come out next week. We usually do it every couple of weeks with this crisis. We're doing one on Monday. It's going to be a former DOJ prosecutor who has done crypto cases. He's going to tell us exactly what they're going to be looking at right now. And then we're going to have Coin uh, Coindesk, which broke the news originally that led to the collapse. We're going to have the senior editor at Coindesk who worked on this uh, on Tuesday coming out as well. But uh, but I'll tell you that the the real um, question that I have is, did he present to these investors just false numbers, false projections, and that will be the evidence uh, primarily of fraud going on? Or did these investors, these VCs, just get into this idea of, hey, it's a new way of doing things. You don't need controls. We don't need to see a general counsel. We don't need to see an accounting department. We don't need to see an HR department. We're not going to do like basic checks that we would do with any other right. company but, but as that, it's growing. That's not illegal. This is a bro-y system. But, you know, this yeah, is, but if that's the system, that they, he didn't do anything illegal. He, if, if they are that dumb... Well, that, that is a real they question. They do not was, demand financial control. I guess I just want to like make a distinction yeah. with these these words because they're, they're they're confusing yeah. me at least. There are investors who are customers of the exchange. Those people were defrauded, and you don't. It could be crypto. It could be marbles. It could be bubblegum. It doesn't matter. Let's call them is. the customers. Let's call them the yeah, customers. The customers were defrauded. customers whose money was stolen. Right. The venture and they can't get the, back right the business now. investors may or may not they will claim that they have been defrauded i'm sure they will try to make that case it will be i think it will probably be very difficult for them to make that case that they were defrauded and not just um they were careless well this is exactly what we get into on our very next episode monday everybody make sure you're subscribing and waiting for this episode to drop because <laughs> this is going to be the coolest thing that's not being talked about on tv but you know, but, I, but this is Rich, just rob yeah Go ahead, Peter. Well, no, I'm just wondering, to Rob's point, I'm starting to think, I don't understand this stuff. And the thing that's so shocking to me is that the kid was in his 20s when he sucked in billions. <laughs> yeah. But I'm now start, it now occurs to me that that may have been the whole point, that the reason up at Sequoia they said, give him the money, is that... I just looked up, I just checked online, Mark Andreessen, who, whom I still think of as a kind of enfant terrible, is no longer an enfant. Mark Andreessen is 51. The guys with, decision, with budget authority in the VC firms around this valley are all too old to understand this. And they may have recognized exactly that. Don't bury me with details. This is a kid's game. And they bring in some of their kids and say, what is it? Right. Oh, this is exciting. It's happening. And they, I, it, it may be something like that, where only a 26-year-old, which seems to be his age when he started to become a boy, well, I think he was a billionaire at 26, only a 26-year-old could have pulled off this con, I think. What do you, <laughs> yeah. what do you make of that? 
<laughs> I think that's a good argument. I, th I think that this is the culture. We've had guests on from industry. We've had guests on who have like been like trying to create their own versions of what we see in traditional finance in this decentralized finance world, in this crypto world. And it's very loose. It's a lot of jargon. It's, it's cultural, not actually grounded in financials. And if you sort of buy into and that, it's being also like, yeah, this not is a movement, really. right? It's a movement. So there's a customer base and it's going to be there. And as, if we just grow it, right? If there's just enough people who get into, if we dump enough money into these coins, yeah, not, so, their value so it's also will not have a to business. go up. It's also not a real business in the following sense. It, as best I could tell, there were two, and best I could tell, informed by listening to several of your podcasts, as best I could tell, the appeal of crypto was twofold. One, crypto was going to become an actual medium of exchange, and people could do deals in crypto, and maybe the government wouldn't be able to track all those deals. Well, A, they've never become media of exchange. Nobody does deals in Bitcoin. And B, it turns out the regulations have just washed over this industry. Gary Gensler is just producing regulations. It's like a smokestack belching smoke the way regulations have been issuing from Washington. And then the other bit was that they were going to become a really useful store of value because the dollar, we couldn't trust the dollar, the Fed didn't know what it was doing, but you could trust crypto. And that hasn't happened either because the price of crypto has gone up and down and side. It's just far too erratic to be. So what you have is a purely speculative product. The only value of crypto is that somebody else thought it was valuable and was pouring money in. Right. And since that doesn't make sense anyway, all the VCs said, I don't know, this is a tulip craze. Why should I try to understand the business model when it's pure speculation? Am I, am I, oh, you're, well, what do you think of that? I, I, I think that there's a little the bit The only way of I can make sense I, of it is I, to say I, that it I'm never just, made sense. All I'm telling you is that, like, you, you go back to the podcast episode we did with Anthony Scaramucci, and I pressed him on this, <laughs> I, you know, not a dumb guy in finance, not a dumb guy on Wall Street, been around the block in plenty of wars, and right. I was just like, you know, what could you possibly see here? And he basically, maybe there's a little bit of that in what you're saying here, because he tells the story about how he was at Sun Valley and there, you know, somebody got up and, and talked about this whole concept where he was going to sell online and, you know, brick and mortars over and blah, blah, blah. And it was 20, 22 years right. ago. And this old guy from Omaha stood up and said, I'm not putting a dime into your, your company ever. Well, it was Jeff Bezos. And so Anthony missed the Amazon train and he won't do that again. And he, this is the future and there's clearly a movement here and it's ups and downs, but the trajectory remains up even after every down. And once it's widespread enough, it's taking over because the technology is okay. just the process. All that. All right. I have a, it, I have a okay. Sorry, James, go. Well, let Rob go first, and then I'll see if I can. Uh, so, I, I a, two, two, two questions. One, uh, uh, you know, high end question, and one super low tacky question based on rumor and innuendo. So, I'm going to end with that one because I, I really, I'm fascinated by this. Okay, um, first question. I mean, uh, here's I posit this: the argument for. I mean, these are. I think these are separate issues. That this was an exchange, a financial institution that was run by a crook. And part of the reason he could hide it is because all of his customers and his investors take the secrecy and the unregulated and the Wild West uh, sort of vibe of crypto as part of its you know chief asset. And so it's easy to steal from people who are talking about how great it is that they are operating without any financial or regulatory oversight. Fine. Like at that point, caveat emptor. I mean, boo hoo hoo for the people who lost their money. I'm sorry. I can't really, you know. I, I have no I have no sympathy for them. Um, but the the argument for crypto as a category is um, all the universal the store of value, hedge against inflation, all that stuff, ease of transaction and privacy, all that's true. But no. what the crypto knots keep forgetting is that the value of a dollar is partly the Fed res Federal Reserve, but also the fact that the value of the dollar is exchanged at a trillion small transactions every day by individuals back and forth. And until that happens in crypto, it will it will always be a tulip. It will never be real. 
because I can't buy my paper with it. I can't buy a cup of coffee right. with it. Right. And all the crypto people, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But I would say to them, stop building exchanges, stop building financial structures on top of it, and instead tell me how I'm going to buy uh, a Snickers bar with my Coinbase wallet. Make that happen. Invest in that infrastructure, right, right. not in the financial engineering infrastructure. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that's right. In fact, the true believers in Bitcoin, right? And this is the original Bitcoin crowd that just cares about being anonymous and getting getting away from right. government and getting and they don't care what the value is today or tomorrow. They they are in it for the long term. They want to be in Bitcoin, and that's how they want to pay for things and have people accept Bitcoin, right? They 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 just believe in Bitcoin itself. They believe in the altruism right. of, of the model of Bitcoin. The they say right thing. now. They say yeah. right now, everything that's not Bitcoin is a fraud. That is, <laughs> yeah, that is right. the original Bitcoin right. crowd. This is their message, everyone. Told everything you. else yeah. is a fraud. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. You can like it or not. You can use it or not. Everything else is a fraud. The short phrase I heard from a friend of mine who's into this, who's tr- explaining this to me the other day, was that if there's a if if there's a person that you can drag into court, that it's not crypto. Crypto is the thing that doesn't have a person that you can drag into court because you can't drag a blockchain into court. Um, is that fair? Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not decentralized certainly not decentralized. Otherwise, you're We're, just in another right. mode of centralized finance. Right, right. I keep going back to what was Peter was asking, why sensible people got sucked into this. And part of it, as you mentioned, is this whole quantum woo-woo and hand-waving about the future in these terms, DeFi, and the rest that they all just sling around and cold storage and the rest of it. You know, I go to a site called uh, Web3 is just going great. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a daily accounting of everything that happens in the crypto and the NFT world about people, about the rug pulls, which is when people announce a great new project, a great new crypto project, and they get the money in and the FT fees are flowing, and then they just pull the rug and disappear and take your money. Or uh, the fact that Monkey Drainer was using a phishing account to hoover up coins from uh, uh, unsecured. I mean, this jargon is impenetrable to anybody as opposed to dollar cents and the rest of it. We can get our hands and our brains around the monetary system that we have right now. Crypto, we have to defer to these tech, to these messianic tech bros who are often just spouting nonsense because they either want our money and are scammers or they deeply believe. I've known people who, who are deep believers in this to the point of religious obsession. But when Rob was saying before about how this is just like any other financial uh, scam, he's right in a sense that Yes, you had investors, you had defrauded investors, whether or not he was defrauding them by saying, I'll never invest your stuff when he was actually giving it to somebody else to invest. That'll be worked out in court. But it is different in this respect. It's like JP Morgan could interest, could issue if he wanted uh, to get out of a pitch, some financial instrument, bonds, right? He could do something like that, and there would be a mechanism and a structure for that. But J.P. Morgan could not say, I'm going to invent a new currency. I'm going to call it the mm-hmm. Deller, and the Deller will have this value. And then and then give, and then then give tell people that I'll pay you in, in Dellers. This guy, <laughs> S- SBF, not only had FTT as his token, he had... I don't know when he just decided to invent a new coin called Serum, right? And Serum, which he put out there, he said it's worth $2 billion. That's a mu- And the Serum market looked at it and said, actually, no, it's worth $78 billion. When we all know the value is zero, there's nothing there. It's a nonsensical invention. So that's the difference, is that once you get a whole bunch of people inured to the idea of a currency that is not backed by anything, and I know <coughs> fiat currency, I get that, but I can opt out at some point, exchange it for pieces of paper, which I can go over and buy gold or zinc or useful things that actually have value in the real world. None of this has any real value in the real Once you get people divorced from that concept and into this airy realm you are asking for this to happen on an ongoing basis until everybody slaps himself and wakes up and says, this all is a house of cards. That's me. That's how I view the whole. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll say two warning signs that I see and, and a demand that's needed. Number one, we're not actually learning a lesson here. Uh, we're instead ganging up on one 30 year old and, and saying that this is just a bad actor. This right. is, this is one fraudster. 
And we're not having a conversation that we're having here on national television in Washington about the systemic issues that likely are going on at a whole bunch of other firms as well. And the lack of accounting standards that we have allowed as a business community to go forward for now a couple of years in this euphoria, a lack of, of control, a lack of transparency, a lack of regulation. Wasn't this not a choice? I mean, you know, Coinbase is uh, open to regulation. Coinbase is regulated as a, as a there, wallet. Well, FTX was regulated. FTX was regulated. FTX was subject. Well, then to the you're same- arguing my point, we which have- is that FTX is fraud. Is was a fraud. Like Enron was a fraud, and FTX is a fraud, and Madoff was a fraud, and we have frauds every you know cycle of frauds every few years. And this is the libertarian dream come true. The people who should have been paying attention are the ones who are going to have to pay. Who needs regulation? Suddenly people are <laughs> wide awake in a way mm-hmm. that they were not well, two but, weeks ago. The VCs are still you know, in, right? So they can't let right. everything collapse. So there's still a lot of money in the system in lobbyists in Washington yeah. and ads on TV. Not for long. But, CNBC is telling me every single second right now of like, oh, let me tell you the next thing about how SBF is terrible. Okay. While it says at the bottom, sponsored by Crypto.com. Right, right. That's that. <laughs> can, I, can I ask I one, mean, my, my tacky question? I know we got to run, but it's one tacky yeah. question I've been reading. Yeah. Um, these are all young people. I saw a, a, um, an interview that um, Sam Bank, is it Bankman Freed or Bankman Freed? SBF. He gave on CNBC and he's like, He's like jittery. He's like bouncing on yeah. his chair. He looks, he looks high on Adderall or Provigil or one of those. Not a well both. Or both. And yeah. to what extent? And uh, what I've been reading about about um, FTX is that they 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 encourage that kind of culture, right? Yeah. To what extent were these just super high on amphetamine kids, like the uh, you know the Nazi high command? making a whole bunch of really, really bad decisions, but doing them really quickly and feeling really great about it and reinforcing each other until it all came crashing down. I mean, there's a certain young person's sense of like the risks don't apply to me. I can bet, make these bets and I know something great's going to happen. That's a gambling mentality. Every gambler has that. And if it goes south, then I'm going to look to see what in this house I can steal and pawn to pay my debt. And if it's your car or your watch, so be it. I'll settle up with you later. I have a sh- this is a sure thing. You don't understand. This horse is going to come in number one. I mean, to what extent are we just talking about young people who are high? Uh, it could be. There, there, is, there is like one of the biggest things that's going wild that the media won't report on right now because it's not proper to do so, but it's pretty wild on well, social media. I, I don't care about proper. I, I, think, I, think, I think, I don't know if you heard about this, but there's supposedly from a former employee, this credible former employee, there's a, there's, you know, potentially an SBF sex video of him and like the, all, mm-hmm. all, all the other people in the Bahamas. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. If it's going to happen, but like, but you know, the point is, is that clearly, but, Rich, Rich, you need to understand yeah, what Rob is saying true. is, what Rob is saying <laughs> is that FTX reminds him of a writer's room in the old days in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, except I, that we had an audience, and we had to we had to put our, our stuff. You up had a stage. But, but how we many a, other how many other rooms like that are going on? How many other rooms? Right, the guest on Monday, the former prosecutor, will t- will say on on the show as, as you'll hear, uh, not the last shoe to drop, not the last fraudster out there. Plenty more down the line, but because they're based in the Bahamas, we have a little bit of a hiccup here, and that is a lot of the evidence the FBI does not yet have access to. And so that's a piece of this that we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, if if the, the media show you're seeing, the New York Times headlines of, oh, you know, woe is SBF and all his altruistic dreams going, going away and his tweets and all that, is to try to, if he can conceal the evidence and keep in the Bahamas or destroy it, and, and there is no deck out there that's clearly false that they gave to an investor, basically say, I'm just, an, I'm just a total F up, right? I'm just an idiot. Uh, instead of saying I'm a fraudster. And at that point, there may not be a criminal charge, only civil penalties. But good luck to anybody recovering the money. Nobody knows where the money is today. Well, there's a Vox interview out there and DMs that's going to come back in court to haunt him, I'm sure. But the one thing we do know, of all of this, there's one person who made it out unscathed, and that's Larry David. Even though yes. he's being sued in this big lawsuit that's that's going after all of the people who were doing FTX ads, Larry right. David's ads consist entirely of him saying, nah, 
I don't think so. So he's on record as saying, don't invest in FTX because I wouldn't personally do so. Wise man. Uh, hey, Rich, thanks a lot. The podcast uh, can be found on the Ricochet Audio Network, of course. It's called Kryptonite with Rich Goldberg. And uh, I got the feeling this isn't over by any means. And so we'll talk to you again soon about uh, the next step, the next shoe in this centipede to to drop. Thanks, Rich. And Rich, when does the, when does the next podcast? We're going we're gonna to drop, gonna drop Monday. Uh, new episode with former DOJ prosecutor talking all about uh, what he sees in this case, what prosecutors are we looking for, and then we're going to talk to Coinbase 24 hours later. Okay, finish your pitch. The name of the podcast again is, and where people can, where can people find it? Kryptonite. Kryptonite on the Ricochet Network. I'll, I'll, Kryptonite with a C. C, like, do you get the joke? C-R-Y-P-T-O-N-I-T-E. Kryptonite. Right, get it? That's funny. Because... Guess what happens when you touch it? Yeah. Well, now we know. Right. Right. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, guys. You know, one of the, I think, I can't remember which of uh, the online news sources is saying that uh, the Alameda Research, the uh, the paramour, former paramour of SBF, uh, apparently is an alt-right darling. I don't think so. But we do know that SBF himself was lauded for his many, many philanthropic contributions and the way that he wanted to push the world to a better place. Uh, well, good luck with that in the future. However, for you, if that's your objective, we've got some good news as well. Yes, charitable giving, where to put your money? Well, here's an idea. We are sponsored today by the Giving Ventures podcast from Donors Trust, your principled charitable giving partner. Seem to you like so many charities are shifting left. Uh, you're not crazy, no. A report from The Economist shows American philanthropy is going awoke and funding liberal causes more and more. If charitable giving is important to you and you want your giving to match your values, then you need to add the Giving Ventures podcast to your playlist. Giving Ventures helps donors like you discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights nonprofit efforts that are making America more free and prosperous. Recent episodes, well, they've highlighted free market groups fighting homelessness, black conservatives' efforts to take the ideas of liberty to new audiences, groups challenging the rising ESG movement, and so much more. The show is a product of Donors Trust, and you've heard us talk about Donors Trust before. It's the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust can help you have a real impact with your giving, and the Giving Ventures podcast will give you a taste of how Donors Trust can be a partner in helping you have a real impact. Grow your giving the smart way. Listen to Giving Ventures from Donors Trust. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet to catch up on all the latest episodes or sign up for new episode reminders, or just search Giving Ventures to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can even find it on, dare we say, the Ricochet podcast feed. That's DonorsTrust.org slash Ricochet. And we thank Donors Trust for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, back again, Charles McElwee, editor of Real Clear Pennsylvania. He's a contributing writer for Real Clear Politics and City Journal. Charles was with us about six weeks ago when we were looking at the Pennsylvania race. I'd ask him what happened, which is the obvious first question, but I understand that Peter Robinson has a bone to pick. <laughs> Peter, Char pick that listen. bone. Charlie's putting up posts about driving through central Pennsylvania and seeing no posters for Fetterman at all. Oz is big, big, big. It's going to happen. It's going to ha Charlie gets me so excited. I put money on Oz and predict it dot whatever it's called in the prediction markets. Crypto. And election night, I was going fine. I'm up. It, the market's pushing me up and up and up. And then the thing just takes a nosedive. And I lost five bucks before I was able to close out my position. So, Charlie, you owe me a Vente Grande at a Starbucks in Philadelphia. It's a deal. I'll buy two. But it's also a lesson. <laughs> you never take... Uh, I mean, never listen to you is well, what's Irish the lesson Catholic is. luck. You don't, I mean, for me, I mean, you don't <laughs> bet like that. Yeah. So, so what happened? Uh, what went wrong? What happened? It was a perfect storm, wasn't it? I mean, um, and look, full disclosure, we, we talked a few weeks ago and all indications were a very Republican move in Pennsylvania. I felt this. I'm driving all over the state. That's true. And while there were Fetterman signs throughout the state, when you talk to any voter in any locale, the, the sense was that the Republican Party had the upper hand.
And instead, in hindsight, we saw how it was a perfect opportunity for the Democratic Party. So what, what were the components to this perfect storm? One, it goes back to 2019. Republicans agreeing to an election reform bill in the Pennsylvania state legislature signed into law by Governor Tom Wolf, Democrat, that leads to this controversial mail-in balloting that Republicans are woefully behind on when it comes to mobilizing voters on their side to vote. And that's driven, of course, in part by the fact that Trump was opposed to those mail-ins in 2020. And since then, Republicans throughout Pennsylvania aren't using them. Democrats have the upper hand. So by the time of the October 25th debate, when you know two weeks before the election, you had voters, uh, you, you had almost 50 percent mail-ins had already been submitted at that at that time. Right. But there were so many factors here, Peter. I mean, you had at the top of the ticket on on the gubernatorial side, Doug Mastriano. Uh, You're trying to make me feel sorry for you, Charlie. Right. I'm uh, the one who's out five bucks. The the worst nightmare imaginable for the Republican Party. Right. The, the greatest scenario for Josh Shapiro's gubernatorial campaign. In fact, he his campaign ran advertising in the primary, hoping that Mastriano would be the candidate. They targeted voters who would vote for Mastriano. You uh, you, you have Trump's deep unpopularity in suburbia. You have abortion that turned out to be a mobilizing issue in suburban areas. And Republicans, it turns out, overplayed their hand on the issue of crime. One thing we can learn from this election is that suburban nights are living a parallel existence. I mean, just where I I am outside Philadelphia, people are no longer going into the city. The the morning commute is a distant memory. It's Uh, something we did before COVID. So crime doesn't crime is not as frightening if you're working from home on the main line outside Philly. Right. And then the retailers on Walnut Street they're opening their second locations on the main line. So you don't have to go to Boyd's off of Rittenhouse Square. You can go to Wayne and shop at Boyd's there. So there's this parallel existence. They're unaffected by District Attorney Larry Krasner. They, they may question Krasner's uh, leadership in the city of Philadelphia, but they're unaffected by it. And right. they, they right. go to Democrat resoundingly in this election cycle. And it's now, fascinating. I- uh, did, uh, is are they unaffected? Are they unaffected by it politically, or do they just did they have something else more important on their mind when they voted? I guess what I'm trying to say is Republicans went in and they vote. I mean, uh, Doctor Oz got more votes, did he not, than Mastriano? Right, Oz compared to Mastriano did well, but Mastriano turned out to be the electoral doomsday machine for all Republican candidates. Right. So, but I guess what I mean is that, that there, there were some Republicans. A bunch of them who went in to the ballot, went in the voting booth and voted for Dr. Oz and did not vote for Mastriano. That's right. We had ticket splitters, it turns out, throughout suburbia. To give you one example, there, there was a report recently uh, after the election that in Bucks County, for example, the perennial swing county, uh, 40,000 voters in Bucks who voted against Mastriano voted for Brian Fitzpatrick, the Republican congressman there, who's a moderate. Right. And right. we learned from 2016 that Republicans can still do well in suburbia with Pat Toomey, for example, that year. He won Chester and Bucks. But I think even since 2016, the suburbs have veered so leftward, especially in these healthcare driven suburbs, right. that it's a long term challenge for the Republican Party. Charlie, let me ask you a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to ask a question that I know is on Rob's mind, but Rob is trying to be very, very good. So I'll be bad for him. And I'll be the first one to use the T word, as in Trump. There are two states we can think of where Republicans were up for the governorship and the Senate, and they won both. And they won both very, very well. Ohio, Mike DeWine was elected governor by some 25 points. J.D. Vance won by what was the final six or seven points, which is very solid. It's not as good as Rob Portman, who six years ago won by 21 points, but six or seven points is very solid. And then, of course, you know where I'm going. Ron DeSantis won by almost 20 points, the governorship of Florida, and Marco Rubio won by 16 points. And what those two have in common is that Trump had nothing to do with them. And what what beleaguer the pro- difficulty in Pennsylvania is that Mastriano and Mehmet Oz were both Trump's 
candidates. And Trump sat on the GOP in Pennsylvania like a mattress. Charlie, true or false? So, at least in the suburbs, I find it hard to believe that when you consider all the concerns ranging from crime, and right, they may not be affected by it because they live in the suburbs, but nevertheless, their children live in the city. So crime, economy, inflation. I find it hard to believe that those issues supersede their memories of Trump's tweets. I think in the case of Pennsylvania, you were facing a crisis, the, the Republican Party was facing a crisis of candidate quality. On the governor's side, Doug Mastriano, the fact that he took extreme positions on social issues right. that were to the right of the average Trump voter. Now, the story of Oz, he got Trump's endorsement, but throughout the campaign, he tried to, as best as he could, avoid Trump. And he did have a rally with Trump right before the election, but nevertheless, targeted suburbia, ran a very centrist, moderate, bipartisan campaign. Really, if anything, he was in in past elections would have been totally palatable to the sensibilities of the average suburban voter. But let's say David McCormick had pulled it out over in the primary. Let's talk about this scenario. Give give listeners a sentence or two on McCormick. So David McCormick ran against Oz in the primary Kathy Barnett was a late stage insurgent in that primary, but that was an overstated component to what turned out to be this razor thin victory for Oz over McCormick. McCormick ran. McCormick McCormick is West Point. He's a rich man. He did extremely well in the financial markets. And I think he was at, uh, where was he? Uh, Not BlackRock, Black something or other. What's Ray Dalio's firm in Connecticut? Uh, Bridgewater. Bridgewater. and he served in the Trump administration. This guy, he could present himself as a Trump guy, but overall, he's just this fantastically impressive human being. Is that fair? The resume is stellar, but okay. But but there's this theory that holds that McCormick would have done better than Oz. McCormick could have won. I don't buy right. that at all. Fetterman, in hindsight, ran this perfect campaign in pennsylvania (laughs) all indications were there that this would go well for him he won the guy had a stroke he lucked out (laughs) he won all 67 (laughs) counties in pennsylvania against connor lamb in the past would be considered a blue dog democrat he targeted trump regions he was campaigning heavily in counties like erie which went for trump in 16 a biden in 20 and is has treaded them but mccormick was a perfect uh, he was central casting for Fairman. Fairman could have gone to those regions that I'm up against the, the former Rich, head of the hedge fund, a Bush administration alum in a region where Bush is still unpopular and in areas that were suffering from offshoring manufacturing. He would have been perfect for Fetterman's campaign. Oh, OK, so, so let me try. Let me try this out on you. Um, the the. In 2015, 2016, I was sitting having dinner with a bunch of people and a, a, a Pennsylvania political watcher told me with confidence, she slapped her hand on the table and said, Trump's going to win Pennsylvania. I thought she was nuts. Trump won Pennsylvania. Right. Um, and the and the response from the Republican Party was, I guess we win Pennsylvania now. I guess that's how it works. Pennsylvania's ours now. This is the, the kind of how Republicans strategize. We won it once, it's ours. So in 2020, they were surprised when they lost it. They complained and moaned and whined, but they lost it fair and square. And in 2022, they still had this attitude that there's this base in Pennsylvania that they don't have to work for. And it seemed to me that what you just described is the Fetterman campaign saying, no, no, we're going to work for everything. We're going to go for, we know that Pennsylvania is not in our camp or in their camp. It's up for grabs. And we're going to battle in Trump districts for for votes. And we're not going to try to outsmart ourselves. You know, whereas the Republican side was trying to outsmart itself and figured they had all these sort of demographics thing. They figured it out was we we know we're going to win there. We know we're going to win here. And the Fetterman went hunting everywhere that the Trump voters were, knowing that in Pennsylvania, at least every single every single one, a huge portion of those Trump voters were also Obama voters before they were Trump voters. And so isn't that the strategy for a state like Pennsylvania, maybe other states, too, which is to do not attempt to grow a brain and just try to get everyone all over the state to vote for you and stop trying to outsmart yourself. 
That's yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it, it's this battle for voting margins throughout a culturally fractious map. So all those working class areas only a decade ago were when Romney ran against Obama, they were Democrat. And in many instances, those voters were still voting for Obama over Romney. They only flocked to Trump in 16. But their vote for Trump, the Republicans fell into the trap of believing that their votes are now assured. They are not assured in places like Luzerne County, Erie, Northampton County, and the Lehigh Valley. It's a a two-front challenge for Republicans. Hey, I have to interrupt you for just a second, because you're probably thinking about these things, as you do during the Ricochet podcast, and wondering, hmm... I wonder if I could make money on that. I got a great idea. That thing that guy said, that was brilliant. I could, I could do something. I could, you know. Well, if you've thought about starting your own business, creating a brand, sharing your particular wealth of knowledge with the world, or using your years of experience to create something for yourself, how do you get your ideas off the ground? Hover. Hover wants to help you take the first step to getting your ideas off the ground. If you have a brand you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is finding a domain name. That's right. you got to start there uh, or somebody's going to take it and you're going to be out of luck. Hover. Hover makes this super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly human beings. It's easy to find the perfect name for your idea. Hover has over 400 domain extensions to end your domain with. Now, you're saying, what? There's .com, there's .org. Okay. They're not short on the classics like .com and .net, but you can find niche extensions like .design and .tech, and the quirky entrepreneur can find extensions like .bagel, .ninja, .party to reach your particular audience. Have you thought those things exist? And no, they do. Hover will help you find them. Once you find your domain, use Hover Connect to set up your domain automatically with your website in just a few clicks. No more dragging through help articles to figure out how to get your domain working. I've done this many times. It's a pain. Hover makes it simple, and that makes it easier for you to get online and start. You can buy a domain, set up a custom email boxes, point it to your website in just a few clicks. If you ever run into trouble, help is just a phone call or a chat away. It's secure. It's simple. It's reliable. Hover, it's a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of brand or business. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with a perfect domain name, head over to hover.com slash ricochet and get 10% off your first Hover purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash ricochet. And we thank Hover and welcome them to this, the Ricochet podcast. Okay, I got one more theory I want to run by you. And I think this is maybe more about Arizona, but Pennsylvania maybe. There are a whole lot of Republicans in those states who did not vote for Trump. And they went in there and they did not vote for the top of the Republican ticket in 2020. And then a governor, a a gubernatorial candidate ran telling them that there was fraud and it was unfair and there was it was stolen. And there were a whole lot of Republicans in Arizona, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania who thought, no, it wasn't stolen. I didn't vote for the guy. And the cognitive dissonance of being told by a by a politician that what you did, did you didn't do is just too much for them to bear. And that's why they went in. They said, look, I can hold my nose and vote for Blake Masters. I can hold my nose and I can vote for um, uh, Dr. Oz, but I cannot hold my nose and vote for somebody who is so out of touch. They don't realize that I am a Republican and did not vote for Trump. Is that possibly what happened in Pennsylvania? There are I've voters. stumped you. I've stumped you. Well, no, there are, there are voters <laughs> in Pennsylvania who are not fixated with the past. And they're not talking about the 2020 election. They're not talking about COVID either. I, I even think Republicans to some extent. They're not as fixated as Rob. Is that roughly what you're trying to suggest well, I, here, I, I, Charlie? In, in some cases, Republicans overplayed their hand on the f- fact that Wolf, as governor, indisputably it enacted what were in hindsight terrible policies. I mean, they were no less terrible at the time, but very, very restrictive. But people want to forget about COVID the way people, the way my grandmother wanted to forget about the 1918 flu. We don't want to talk about it. You're moving right. forward. And uh, Republicans, I, I remember seeing billboards I mean, about COVID-19. Mastriano, that's how it became popular, talking about COVID-19 on social media. And it just didn't work. But there's this all there's also this telling trend in Pennsylvania that it's really not getting covered, but I think it's essential to understanding how the demography is playing out. In so many of the, let's say, state house seats 
that Republicans or that Democrats flipped. So Democrats will now have a majority in the state House of Representatives of Pennsylvania. The seats that they flipped are in areas that were Republican when Trump was elected. But in most instances, mm-hmm. health care is the primary employer. So take uh, Hershey, uh. Pennsylvania, for example. We think that's a chocolate town. We associate that with Hershey Kisses. In reality, that's home to Penn State Health. And it's undergoing this massive residential project that's projected to add 10 to 15,000 people in the next decade. Who are those voters? They're voters that are coming from other areas, graduating from medical school, doing their residency there. They're all Democrats. And we've seen this past year. I mean, there's been great reporting from like, like, like Tevi Troy, a commentary, Heather McDonald, that City Journal talking about how the medical profession has just gone so leftward. The, the, the medical profession is now progressive. That was once a Republican base they're now Democrat. And the University of Pittsburgh Medical System alone, UPMC, is the largest non-government employer in Pennsylvania. So it, it, wait, 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 say that again. That's incredible. Say that again. The largest non-government employer in Pennsylvania is UPMC. If you live in Pittsburgh, UPMC you stands voted, for for listeners. Uh, University of, of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And if you Got live it. in Pittsburgh and you just voted for Summer Lee, who was whose career was backed by DSA, if you vote for her, you're more likely than not, you were employed by UPMC. That, and that's but, yeah, yeah. I mean, that model is working all over the country. The biggest employer is the state. After that, it's the healthcare. And after that, it's the insurance companies that pay for the healthcare. Charlie, Charlie I, I want to go back to something you said before, not at the risk of dragging this conversation backwards, but <laughs> Why were those people Trump voters in 2016 and not in 2020? What what made them Trump voters in 2016 that had evaporated by four, four, four or six years later? So the mistake that Mastriano made, for example, was running a campaign consumed with social concerns. And the, the beauty of Trump's campaign in 16 in a state like Pennsylvania was he was not focused on social issues at all. It was an economic populist campaign and as a result performed quite well in areas like suburbia. Trump barely lost Bucks County that year outside Philadelphia, but it was a a campaign completely stripped of social concerns. And this was an election year where in the middle of the summer, you have the Dobbs decision, of course, and abortion, it turns out, was mm. more of a mobilizer among suburbanites than concerns about crime and the economy. And that, I think, is the difference between Trump and 16 of Pennsylvania and the Republican candidate in this cycle. The Republicans prevailed that year because they weren't focused on social issues. Social issues were the concern this year, and they got punished in suburbia. That's a great answer, and I have absolutely nothing to add to it, so I won't spoil it. But Peter, I believe. <laughs> Can I, ask, Peter, right. I, have, I have sort of a last question for Charlie, and it's this. Charlie, you were wrong. Wait, wait. I was too, start, but you... Before we start, wait. It's Charles, though, right? It's Charles. Oh, do you go by Charles? Wait, Charles, but Charlie's just fine, just not Chuck. Listen, you lose me by five <laughs> bucks, and you get demoted from Charles yeah, to Charlie. Say, but and I if thought. you lose you me money next time you around, want, you're going to be Chuck. <laughs> You can call me whatever you want, Peter, for what I for my predictions a few weeks ago. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. That's exactly what if you're right. lucky I'm not calling you Chuck the way things went. Exactly. Okay. So <laughs> Charles, you were wrong. As it happens, I was mistaken and Rob was mistaken and James. We were all wrong, but you're a professional. You were mistaken. And furthermore, you love your home state. I watch you, you, your Twitter feeds. You actually do love Pennsylvania. You've been posting so this posting pictures of autumn in Pennsylvania, the countryside, the beautiful red barns as trees turn. You even found picturesque corners of Harrisburg. How? I don't know. So <laughs> this pains you. you. You love Pennsylvania, and they just voted for the wrong guys. And then... The Phillies lost to the Astros. And so, Charles, I just want to know, how are you? I'm not doing well, (laughs) especially with the Phillies loss. But look, um, it's funny. I I did predict that Trump will win Pennsylvania 16, but we can't get it right. Oh, is it that bad? You got to go back to 16 to console yourself now. I was on the record predicting that would happen, but... Um, look, all indications were that this was going to be a good Republican year. Polling indicated that it was going to be that that Oz would pull it out. But you, you talked about the Phillies. And, you know, the issue there is um, the Phillies went to the World Series two days before that debate on October 25th, which was a stark display of Fetterman's condition following his stroke. 
But what's lost in the story is that there was a battle at that time between um, Nexstar and Verizon Fios. So as a result, anybody who had Fios in Pennsylvania had there was a due to that distribution battle had an issue accessing the debate on TV. So, and I experienced this firsthand. I was I wanted to watch the debate that night and I had to scramble on my laptop and turn it on. But that that's a lost factor in this. So many voters did not see the debate, but voters were also more focused on the Phillies going to the World Series than they were on the campaign at that point. So in hindsight, Fetterman's condition, what Oz thought would help him, actually, one, either voters didn't see it, or two, so many voters throughout Pennsylvania empathized with Fetterman and gave him credit for even showing up. Mm -hmm. And in, in a strange way, Fetterman's revolting development worked out for him right can i ask one 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 question about pennsylvania but probably about larger issues too uh, isn't it i mean i don't know i'm asking you if you feel the way i feel i mean it's it's still nice in a very very big way for the predictors to be wrong for the polls to be still within the margin of error incorrect for the prognosticators to have prognosticated incorrectly and for a state and its voters to continue to surprise people and to make decisions the way they're supposed to make decisions which is by not really listening to what they're told to do on tv um and so when we get these moments like pennsylvania we can kind of maybe overdetermine the the solutions or overdetermine the responses which you know everyone's we all do it it's human and certainly if i was running a political party i would do it but isn't the deep down here that the mystery of the voter and the mystery of that one day or that one process that we have and thank god it's still mysterious or am i a pollyanna whistling past the graveyard as pennsylvania turns marxist <laughs> well no i actually think um this election shows that re pennsylvania when it comes to compared to other states remains quite competitive because even though democrats had such a good year in the state all indicators are that voter registration numbers, for example, continue to trend upward for the Republican Party in Pennsylvania. They have dramatically narrowed Democrats' voter registration advantage in Pennsylvania. Um, you, you have the city of Philadelphia, meanwhile, where there is an upcoming mayoral race, uh, and it will be interesting to see who does prevail in May of next year and how that will play a role headed into 2024. But if anything, the state remains competitive. Are the suburbs trending blue? That's indisputable at this point. Republicans face a real crisis there. Right. But there are opportunities for the Republican Party, including in all those Hispanic majority cities where voters aren't even necessarily mobilized yet. They're, they're not voting in high numbers yet. Is there an opportunity for Republicans to tap into that? But the challenge for the Republican Party is what is their message for those voters? What is the economic message for the average small Pennsylvania city where the majority of the population is Hispanic, second to third generation, recently lo located to that city for a better quality of life and where the primary employer is warehousing in a state that has become this global hub for logistics and distribution? What is the mess? What, what, how will the Republican Party target those types of voters while also trying to improve their margins in suburban areas that even a decade ago were still Republican? But since then, where Republicans have even flipped courthouses that were held by the GOP for generations. Charles, get a transcript of this interview because you just outlined your next article for City Journal. That's right. <laughs> well, we thank you for being with us. We know it's been a tough, tough, tough time in the fall for Pennsylvania here. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. And I, I just hope that you realize um, that Minnesota was acting in a philanthropic fashion when we decided to let the Eagles win because we knew that we had so many victories to come. We might as well just let them win. So, <laughs> a charitable. Yeah. It was a it was a charitable contribution from us, the Vikings, <laughs> to you because we can afford nice. it this year, can't we? Appreciate uh, it. Charles Charles Michael. We thank you very much. Links to the work that he does should be found on ricochet.com. And, and we should say post. you. Uh, you run uh, the Real Clear Politics Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, go All to realclearpennsylvania.com. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, right. Check our stuff out. Great. Talk to you later. Hey, thanks, guys. Two years, Girls, four years, six you. years, who knows? Thank you. Spend the weekend eating cheesesteak. Just cheese binge. It'll make you beer. feel better.
Yeah, exactly. Beer. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm still on the road to recovery. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> think about the cheesesteak. Think about the cheesesteak, though, is depending on the quality of the meat. You can get that kind of stuff that's a little bit stringy somehow, you know, and it's it's great. You're enjoying it. You're wolfing it down, but you get a little bit of that steak caught in your right. teeth. And, you know, most of us don't have an implement when we're out eating cheesesteak. No cheese way to steak. get rid of that. Something about it. Well, you have to go home. You have to go permanent. home and you have to yep. and you have to brush. As your mother told you, but it's not enough to just drive. Even if that works, toothbrushes are terrible. Well, you know, it used to depend. There used to be a um, a prophylactic was the name of a brand back in the 40s when they used hog bristles. And when they went to a new nylon bristle, which was just the absolute fantastic scientific innovation of the post-war era, they would show all these hogs in the ads who were, I don't know if they were happy or if they were sad. They may have been sad that they no longer had some sort of usefulness, but there was an association between hog bristles and cleaning your teeth. Yeah. Luckily, we live in the 21st century where the implements that we use for dental hygiene are marvelous and come right to you and they're cheap and they're fantastic and they last forever. And of course, I'm talking about Quip. Quip is loved by over 7 million miles because the people who use it know that good health starts with good habits. Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to care for your mouth. And what might that Quip electronic toothbrush do? Well, it's got tonic. Um, it's got it. Well, it is a tonic. I guarantee you after you've used it, you'll feel relief, but it has timed sonic vibrations with 30 second pulses to guide a dentist recommended two minute clean a lightweight sleek design for both adults and kids no wires no bulky charger to weigh you down a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter pops on pops off reusable handles and a range of sleek metal hues including the best-selling all black and all pink so if you have one of those great 1950s tile bathrooms that has the black and the pink you can get this husband wife spouse put them on the mirror it'll complement your decor as well as bright plastic colors it'll make sure that you got a pop on your bathroom counter are you on top of your brushing not literally but you know figuratively you can upgrade your quip with a new get this a smart motor that's right a smart motor to track and improve your brushing with the free quip app trust me once you've done this you will say And to think that I ever resisted tying my toothbrush to my phone. But it's cool once you do it because you can earn amazing awards like free refills and products and Target gift cards, much more. Beyond the brush, of course, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Try their sugar-free refillable gum. It's got a long-lasting mint flavor. comes with a dispenser. And their refillable mouthwash that's a four times concentrate, so it's good for you and it's good for the planet. Quip delivers all of this whatever you choose in the configuration you like. But basically, you can get the basic Quip three months, every three months, $5. $5. Shipping's free, so you can save money and skip the hustle and bustle of in-store shopping. With a stylish and affordable electric brushes that start at just 25 bucks, you will not be paying through the teeth for better oral health. To go to getquip.com slash ricochet right now, this very moment, you will get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash ricochet. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash ricochet. Quip, the good habits company. And we thank Quip for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Well, before we go, we have to tell you that this whole cyber crypto thing exists in an in an incorporeal world in which shadows chase shadows. Not like that in the real world where ricochet people get together in bars. They don't chase each other in the bars or in the whatever, but they sit down and talk like humans have always done since the first Neanderthal said, hey, come over here and tell me what you're eating. Here's Rob Long to tell you where people are meeting in real life. I can easily tell you that. Uh, we want you to join Ricochet so that you can help us um, keep these podcasts going. They are <laughs> it, like Pennsylvania, is not a sure thing, um, <laughs> and nor is the site. We do need you to join. But the best part about joining, besides the site and the conversations and the podcasts, is that you could go to a Ricochet meetup, and they are uh, happening all over the country. That's where you get to meet real people in real life and... Um, and you join ricochet.com, you'll know exactly where to go. Uh, for instance, uh, Rush Babe 49 and Ray Kajawa are hosting their holiday open house and chili party on December 3rd in Everett, Washington. Uh, there's a meetup scheduled in Pittsburgh on December 10 and 11. There's one in Sarasota in January over the weekend of the 14th. I mean, that is actually, that's good planning. Sarasota in mm-hmm. January, I recommend it. Uh, and there's another one in Vacaville, California on the 28th of January. And of course, we're doing one uh, in New Orleans next year, probably uh, sometime around the um, uh, French Quarter Festival, I think. Uh, and there are others in the works. And then I know some of you are thinking, I, ah, it's maybe too far to go, or the schedule doesn't really work, or whatever. Look, it's a big country, and I know money's tight, so if our meetup locations are out of your reach, you aren't doomed to a lonely, ricochet-less existence. Just join 
Give us a place and a time, and Ricochet will come to you. That's what Ricochet is made up of, people who travel for fun. So for details on our Ricochet meetups, go to go to ricochet.com slash events and find the module in the sidebar on the site, and we look forward to seeing you IRL. Before we go again, we began the podcast by saying, with our astonishment and relief, that Twitter had survived, right? Peter, you uh, apparently went out in the yes. place of glory last night and told everybody to, to bleep off, and then now you find out that you're still on the platform and you have to go back and mend all these fences. I have to live with these people. <laughs> right. Well, we'll leave with this, because this is what's interesting about this. We're in a big tech purge at the moment. I understand that more tech jobs have been lost numerically than happened during you know the, uh, the dot-com crash which is interesting. And a lot of people are being dumped in the market and whether or not these people have the sort of skills that will immediately find use in the rest of the world is, is all of a sudden a question. There's a couple of tweets from Antonio Garcia Martinez, uh, who is a guy who's into this stuff. And I believe he's also into the crypto realm and the rest of it and all the DeFi side, et cetera. But he made a great point. Elon, he said, simply defenestrating the entire HR regime, the ESG grifters, the Skittles hair people with mouse clicking jobs who think themselves bold social crusaders rather than a parasitic weight around any organization's neck is an intolerable overturning of the social order. Twitter must fail after the purge of such former elite. For if Twitter does not fail, if in fact it manages to emerge stronger than before, then what sort of example would this set for every other organization similarly captured by this elite? Unthinkable. Which is why the wailing and the gnashing and the rending of garments is going on. People who thought themselves indispensable to the creation of the next upcoming social order are being told that they're they're not. The 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 bre- the, the brusqueness and the and the glee with which Musk is firing people who mouth off to him on the internal Slack channels is really something to behold. We haven't seen this in a long time, have we? Well, we saw it in the White House. Uh, well, yes, there was, there was a lot of the, uh, uh, sort of, I mean, look, I, I, this is also part of the problem is looking at the, I mean, you know, people just, I'm, I'm sure that I agree with the larger point that he's making, but the idea that this sort of applies to firing engineers and a company that was an engineering company that was trying to, I mean, this is just a silly thing to, 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 to either to get worked up about uh, in the negative or the positive. It, it is not meaningful in for in the politics of the, or the culture. What's in, interesting is all those people who are fired, they're all, you know, this is like a huge number of engineers. You know, there are, there's about 290, maybe $300 billion in venture capital right now that is not, deploy they call it dry powder that means that they get a whole bunch of really i mean i imagine some of them are going to be talented resourceful uh engineering folks who've seen a big company and have some experience are now going to be sitting there with their three-month severance and saying well what can i do now and there's 300 billion dollars in silicon valley and other venture capital firms just waiting to, to look at their 11 11 slide deck and hear their pitch so this may be a good thing for everybody Bravo for them. Yes, it's yeah. that the 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 the, 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 the Twitter engineer situation. I'm not exactly sure what they do, uh, given that the Twitter's Twitter's infrastructure is not held by Twitter. It's AWS, from what I understand. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, yes, if the dry tender leads to a whole bunch of new, incredible, wonderful companies, that would be fabulous. If some of that tender wants to come over and build the Ricochet crypto token, mm. we're here. You know, there are seats at the table. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we rely on you who joined Ricochet, right? You would love to? Yes, you would. Uh, you would also like to use Donors Trust. You would like to use Hover. You would like to use Quip because your life will be immeasurably richer for them. And uh, we love when our sponsors are patronized. Not talked down to, but given money. And of course, that five-star review at Apple, you've been waiting all these years to do it. Now's the week, so I just don't have to say it anymore, but I will. In any case, we're off next week for Thanksgiving. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you in a fortnight, and we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week. Or no, week after that. Week after next. Week after next, boys. Happy Thanksgiving. Ricochet. Join the conversation.